Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, everything you could possibly imagine, even the most unexpected of subjects, like wind, driving and nails. Deja vu as well, I think. We could do that. That would be brilliant. Or we could do plasters, masters and disasters. Lasters, which of course is about the history of endurance. Ghetto blasters. Or pastors, which is a sort of Lloyd Grossman history of Italian food. I think we should do. I think we should do all of those, Sam. However, Definitely. for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew? I know you know um, that the history of ladders is in fact all about prehistoric cave art. It's about the Crusades and the capture of Constantinople in 1204 using flying ladders. It's about lamplighters in 18th century Dublin. It's also about accidents and superstition. Think falling off and walking under ladders. It's about ancient and medieval sieges. It's about attacking fortified castles with ladders. And of course, it's all about that very popular children's game, Snakes and Ladders. Or, who knew, that the history of saliva, yes, saliva has a very interesting history, is in fact all about civilization, chewing tobacco, TB, truth, protection from evil, women's movements, Charles Dickens, and of course, childhood. It always comes back to childhood, Sam. They do. Uh, those were two particularly excellent, very unexpected histories of the unexpected episodes. I really enjoyed researching ladders. I remember that now. And saliva. Anyway, uh, you're all probably wondering who is doing this chatting. Let me introduce my fellow presenter. I will do so by saying that if history was a book, uh, which is actually quite an intriguing idea, isn't it? Considering that history is made up of knowledge compiled in books. Maybe, maybe it's fair to say that history is a library. Anyway, if history was a book, I want you to pretend that, this man would be none other than the author, editor, copy editor, proofreader and designer of that book of the past that has sold more copies than any other in the whole history of publishing. More copies than the Bible. More copies than the 100 million copy-selling novella Le Petit Prince, published in April 1943. Uh, it included all sorts of interesting stuff which was banned by the Vichy regime of France. Nonetheless, he is a one-man band of book creation and, of course, book consumption through its very reading. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It is, he is, James Daybell. It hello, is. James. Hello, hello. Uh, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, you're comparing me to the IKEA catalogue, I think, there, Sam, or some sort of legendary encyclopedic adventure. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a reading-related historian, he'd only be like, in that he's not actually, but like Renaissance Italian military engineer Agostino Romelli, who by 1580, had invented the book wheel, thus allowing people to engage in radial reading, working across, across multiple texts and tomes at once. So far reaching and intellectually curious are his historical reading endeavours. So expansive is his archival quest in reading in the archives. There's nothing circular about his particular historical arguments. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mind the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis that's quite hello james hello, hello everyone that was very good 
Um, I, I just wanted to talk about <laughs> I just wanted to talk about reading wheels, book wheels, ah. radial well, reading. Um, we've uh, uh, this is um, we are doing the history of reading. You've probably worked that out now. Uh, very exciting, and it's a bit old school histories of the unexpected because. Um, for those of you who've been listening to us from way back in the mists of time will know that um, early on in our career of histories of the unexpected, James went through what can only be described as a stationary period where we uh, we did books, ink, paper, writing, the signature, the pen. Um, so um, hopefully this will uh, this episode will touch on all of these themes and you should all go back and explore them more through the back catalogue. Um, um, we've even done reading. books. Be- we've even done books before, Sam. We've done the history yeah. <laughs> of the book. Yeah. Mm. So we've done we've done all of stuff. that. And the reason we did that was because I think we were developing our concept. And one of the ways in which I wanted to develop the concept was through my own research, uh, talking about things that I know about in a in a sort of more interesting and popular way. But yeah, the history of reading. <laughs> this was your choice, wasn't it? It what is, inspired but you, I think you, you Sam? also were just sitting. You were just sitting in your study naming things that you looked at. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that, maybe that, maybe that was it. Yes, uh, desk. But we haven't done mugs yet, uh, or coffee. No, oh, let's do mugs. That's a cracking idea. <laughs> yeah, we'll, no, we'll do mugs. I like the idea. Wind and mugs. Is what's coming next? Um, right. So we're doing reading. Um, all sorts of reasons. Um, I can't remember what they were now, but it's a it's a very exciting project to get into. And um, gosh, you can tear this thing apart in so many ways. Um, I was very interested in the in the the material culture of reading beyond the book, not just the book. Um, other things that reading uh, reading comes with. Um, I was thinking about that the other day because I was going to need to go and buy myself some reading glasses because I've reached that age where ah. um, some reading glasses would really help. Um, I thought about the ability to read full stop and how that depends upon an understanding of letters and I've always been very interested since I was a boy in different forms of writing. In fact I could easily have done a PhD, well not easily but I could I could have done a PhD in um, hieroglyphs or runes and I would thought oh I'll tell you what let's have a, have a little bit of a think about alphabets and um, also reading as a kind of a tool of empire I thought about because I was reading something Ooh, recently about mission missionaries and um, all the you know, Victorian period, people traveling all, the, all over the world, bringing with them an understanding of English and literacy and attempting to um, essentially kind of control people through their ability to read and how it didn't necessarily go as planned. So those are those are the topics that I, I thought I would look into. Oh, books and empire. I've been fascinated by a history of reading for many, many years. And before I got a full time job, I spent an entire summer in the British Library working up a postdoc proposal on the history of book ownership and social practices of reading for women. So I basically taught myself from the bottom upwards, exactly how to do a history of reading and book ownership. And there are all sorts of wonderful resources that you can use. I mean, not only do we have physical books that survive, which have details of book ownership in them, that they have uh, people's names in them, but also we have wonderful probate inventories that list books within the household so we can get a sense of who owns books. We can also get a sense of library lists and there's some wonderful big 
catalogues of Renaissance libraries so you know exactly who owns what. We can think about books in terms of printing. We can go to the stationers' registers. However, these all tell you about books and ownership. What they don't tell you about is the silent practice or otherwise of reading. And I think that's something that's really interesting. And how do we how do we reconstruct something that is really a silent art? It's often accompanied by uh, writing. So it's about annotations in books. It's about marginalia. It's about people writing about about the books that they're reading. It's keeping reading logs. It's describing them, discussing them in letters. It's discussing them in diaries. It's also about talking about your own reading practices. And so I think we can also think about different forms of reading. And one of the things I'm interested in is shifts in types of reading across time. So if we think about this in the sort of long durée of reading, we move from a we move from a, a medieval or ancient and medieval system of probably reading out aloud. Think about the rise of silent reading and what that means and the kinds of reading that can be done and what it is about reading silently and in private. But then also think about the continuity of reading and sociability. So in other words, reading in in groups and many of us, many of listeners probably join and belong to reading groups. I have my own reading group. Um, so think about the, the the ways in which you read. You mentioned uh, you mentioned learning to read in different different alphabets. So I think there's a hierarchy of the different fonts and different types of print or manuscript that people may or not be able to read. Think about reading across different languages and that and how that enables you to access different kinds of literature. Think also about the the teaching children to read and why you do it and what they are reading. Think also about different kinds of reading, whether it be passive reading. So you're reading literally for basic understanding. You're learning something by rote. Think about communal reading, reading with other people. Think about appropriation of texts. Think about reading banned books. Think about reading against the grain, finding something that you want within a text that then prompts you and inspires you to think in other ways. Think about how reading is connected to those larger questions in history. You talked about empire, Sam. So the the export of books and ideas around the world as part of that sort of mental framework that allows you to impose your imperial will and ideas and systems onto other cultures. But then also think about the spread of ideas through books and the way in which people engage with them, whether this be political ideologies, whether it be religious ideas, whether it be you know, uh, reading for creativity or, or stimulation or enjoyment. You know, so there are all kinds of things that we can that we can think about with with reading. I'm not going to talk about many of those. I just wanted to give a sort of ramble <laughs> around the past. I'm going to talk about. I've, I've worked a lo- I've worked a lot on this, um, and I'm going to talk about letters. Would you Would you believe? I'm going to talk about letter sixteenth uh, and seventeenth century letters as a site for looking at women's reading activities, and then also I'm interested in how people read letters. So where you read them, how you read them you know, secrecy codes, you know, concepts of personal letters and that kind of thing. So we'll we'll see where we get with that. Excellent. 
see where we get with that. I'm going to start in a in a a muddy field mm. in a King King Alfred's Wessex. Mm. That's where we're going. Yeah, a uh, great place to start thinking about the history of reading and also to do the, the medieval culture. This is this is what was inspired by my need for reading glasses. And I was suddenly thinking about how what other things you needed to read a book. And this brings me to something called the Alfred Jewel. And it's absolutely stunning. It's, it's certainly the most important surviving piece of Anglo-Saxon enamelling and goldsmithing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a it's sort of teardrop-shaped uh, uh, with uh, amazing uh, blue and turquoise enamelling, gold all the way around it, uh, and ending in the the head of a of a it's either a tortoise or a lizard or something like that. Um, anyway, a magnificent piece of art. Um, it was discovered in 1693 in a deer park in Somerset, um, just three and a half miles from the Isle of Athelney, where Alfred founded a monastery. And what's remarkable about this is actually it's engraved with the words Alfred Mechhet Gewirkan. I think that is probably a very accurate Anglo-Saxon pronunciation. And it is translated as Alfred ordered me made. Now, this is important because it's believed to be the decorative end to a pointing stick, which would have been used to follow words when reading a book. Um, it's possible that it was one of several staffs, which were called Aestels, at the time, which we know from written sources were sent by Alfred to each bishopric in the kingdom, along with a translation of Pope Gregory's book, Pastoral Care. Um, we know in the preface of that book, uh, he wrote, Alfred wrote, I will send a copy to every bishop's see in my kingdom, and in each book there is an astel of 50 mancuses, and I command in God's name that no man take the staff from the book, nor the book from the church. Um, and so there's a chance discovery of what is a very, very important piece of material culture related to reading during King Alfred's time. So that's fascinating in its own right. And it makes you think about all of the, the various other things that go along with a book and uh, how reading out of a book is not it's not just what's going on. There is other stuff going on as well. Um, and it also makes you think about why this might be important in King Alfred's time. So Alfred was uh, known and famous for being a great encourager, not only uh, for translating important documents into English, but also increasing literacy rates among the general population so they could read the books which he had had translated. Um, and of course, it's all to do with... Um, religion as well and he's he's not just encouraging people to read for for the good of themselves he's he's actually doing it so they can read religious texts as much as anything else uh, and that's of course all to do with the vikings um and he sees rebuilding religion as being hugely important to the safety and security of Wessex, uh, because at the time this is where the link comes in it's fascinating it was they were still believing uh, you know, this is the 9th century, the Vikings have been around for 100 years or so, that it was a lack of faith in Wessex that actually led to many of the successes of the Viking armies. Um, and his support for reading, then it kind of really manifested itself in the subsequent uh, recordings of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, a collection of annals in Old English. Absolutely fascinating. It's where we get so much of our understanding of early British history from. Um, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, well, the original manuscript was created late in the ninth century, so towards the end of Alfred's reign. 
and uh, it's interesting how it spreads. You you have one uh, chronicle created, but then multiple copies are sent out, uh, distributed to monasteries all across England, and then they are independently updated with events that go on. Um, so I think it really kind of also encourages you to think about how the Anglo-Saxons actually read their history um, and understood their history. And, of course, it's linked to the fact that they could actually read at all, all to do with King Alfred's encouraging of the literary arts. Oh, lovely, Sam. I've, I've come across that. I've, I've in fact, seen it as well. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to behold. Um, before I get into my stride with, with reading, I want to... Just mention a few sort of incidental things, because I think if you're if you're there and you're interested in the history of reading, there is so much out there in local record offices and libraries that will allow you to get into the history of reading. I chanced the a while back when I was doing some researching in local record offices on a collection of 17th and 18th century lists of books owned by parishes. So imagine this, manuscripts relating to Crediton and Barnstable, so towns in, in Devon, little parish libraries, and lists of books that would have been held within the parish church for people to be able to borrow. And I have in front of me, this is held at the University of Exeter Archives, I have the Doddridge um, library, the Doddridge Library, which was about 354 items, which was founded by John Doddridge of Barnstable in Devon, who lived between 1610 and 1666. And he donated his book collection to the town of Barnstable in 1664. Uh, and his his um, these books then, then passed to the parish, uh, they originally consisted of about 112 volumes, largely about sort of Latin theology, but then they were expanded. And over time, they found their way into the church, into the Athenaeum, and then on loan to the Exeter University Library in 1957. And what we have here is a very local, highly specialised collection, but that would have been accessible for other people. I think if you're interested more generally in reading, there is a wealth of books that have come out over the last couple of decades on this. If you're interested in the 18th century, when we see a real explosion in reading matter, and this is the sort of the period going up to the American Revolution, the French Revolution, so it's a really heady period. It's when a lot of a lot of scholars are directing their energies. There's so much being been written on this, and I just want to give you a few titles to sort of get you excited, to sort of whet your literary historical appetites. Uh, Eve Tavor Burnett, who's also worked on 18th century transatlantic letters has published something called 18th century manners of reading print culture and popular instruction in the anglophone atlantic world sean regan reading 1759 literary culture in mid 18th century britain and france the social life of books reading together in the 18th century house by abigail williams uh, there's also uh, something called learning to read and write in colonial america um, by Jennifer Monaghan, um, and Robert Darnton, who's a brilliant historian, the forbidden bestsellers of pre-revolutionary France. 
um, Ira Gruber's Books and the British Army in the Age of the American Revolution. We've also got William J. Gilmore's Reading Becomes a Necessity of Life, Material and Cultural Life in Rural New England, 1780 to 1835. British Salons of the late 18th and early 19th century, Suzanne Schmidt. Uh, there's Richard Scher's The Enlightenment and the Books, Scottish authors and their publishers in 18th century Britain, Ireland and America. And again, Robert Danton's A Literary Tour de Force, The World of Books on the Eve of the French Revolution. And finally, Kevin J. Hayes, George Washington, A Life in Books. So there are all sorts of things to sort of get your, your teeth into. And I want to talk about none of that. What I want to really talk about is the way in which we can use... We can use letters in the 16th and 17th century to start looking at women's reading ability. Now, one of the things that I think is is really interesting here is to think about whether women could read letters or not. It's one thing in the 16th and 17th century to be able to write. It's another thing to be able to discern uh, correspondence, to be able to read it. Um, and I think what somebody like Keith Thomas argues is that there are variations in reading, as with writing ability. And there's a real difference between an ability to read basic black letter print. So this is the sort of print that school children, school age children would have been taught to read. It's the kind of print that would have been on horn books, these little sort of paddles, wooden paddles with ABC and the Lord's Prayer on that were that was a way of introducing children to the skills of reading. Uh, it's also the kind of print face that would be typeface that would be in Bibles, you know, particularly important um, rubrics in Bibles. So, you know, being able to read that is, you know, was was far more widespread than maybe being able to read Roman type. And certainly fluency in print doesn't mean that you are able to read handwritten documents. And throughout the 16th and 17th century, there are all sorts of different kinds of handwriting and script for different kinds of document. Um, so just because you could read black letter print didn't mean that you could necessarily read secretary hand. And there are various examples. Um, the wife of wife um, of the nonconformist minister, John Penry, uh, assumed that his wife could read the Bible and in fact was able to teach their daughter to do so, which of course is an important part of the Reformation and the spread of religious ideas. But he also assumed that somebody else would have to read his letters to her. So she wouldn't be able to to, to sort of have that. Um, and there are various sort of other other references and uh, and evidence of this as well. Um, I think a lot of women could read letters that were sent to them, but it certainly wasn't it certainly wasn't expected. Now, turning from an ability to read letters or not. I think if we look at the contents of letters, I think they're they're not just a site for basic literacy skills, so the ability to read and write, but also I think they're really interesting for profiling higher forms of literacy. So they enable us to look at book ownership, the nature and extent and practice of women's reading. In other words, what are they reading? How are they reading it? Female involvement in the writing and circulation of manuscript poetry, uh, as well as sort of various other sort of literacy skills or sort of higher literacy skills um, and involvement in 
in things like uh, music or architecture, medicine, theology, playgoing, participation in what is largely a public male world of the Republic of Letters. And I think reading through correspondence, we can find all sorts of references to to books mentioned in passing. So if we take, for example, the Catholic woman Mary Wilford, she in a letter asked her mother whether she could spare the book of the life of St. Catherine, assuring her that I'll give it back to you very safely. Anthony Bacon, uh, the son of Lady Anne Bacon, the classically educated uh, gentle noblewoman, uh, you know, talks about books with his mother all of the time. There are references in other letters, such as the letters of Alice Norton, wife of the Puritan minister, to Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in a postscript in Elizabeth Poley's letter to her brother, Simon Dews, uh, her husband asked his brother-in-law to purchase for his wife a great Bible with the fairest print for her weak eyes. So you talked about the materiality of reading there, and I think there's nothing more sort of material than actually people's physical ability to read here. So we can see then in letters a whole range of sort of references to to books. References by title are, are pretty rare, but if you go to other kinds of sources, including lists of books, inventories of women's libraries, wills, book bills, portraits, marks of ownership, book dedications, these all flesh out a much fuller picture of the kinds of books that women owned and would have read. Um, more common than references to book-related to books, actual titles of books, are references to book-related transactions. So women are often found sending, giving and borrowing books. So, for example, uh, Lady Jane Seymour in 1549 is caught, is seen um, sending books backwards and forwards and requesting books um, from Reformation theologians. Margaret Countess of Bath gives orders to a servant to send her a book. And we can think about all sorts of other examples like that. It's also clear that wives had regular contact with husbands' books and libraries. So this concept of women's reading and women's books is something that is in fact quite porous and that women would have had access to all sorts of other uh, material. The other interesting thing in letters is the way in which women discuss their books in a much more sustained way, not merely seeing them as gifts or objects, but they refer to their contents. And there are comments and opinions expressed about religious books. Um, Lady Elizabeth Russell, for example, was well known for her reformist attitudes in matters of religion. And she sent the Countess of Shrewsbury uh, what she described as a re religiously edifying little book, writing, your most noble lady may know what my religion is. Uh, and the letter continued, God in whose hands the hearts of princes be, enlarge your heart and lighten the eyes of your mind to her sake and follow his word and will in all obedience according to his words. We can also see women using a language and vocabulary in their letters that's suggestive of a familiarity with a whole range of books. Do you take, for example, Elizabeth Russell, who again is another classically educated and, and really exceptional woman for the 16th century. Her letters are littered with Latin tags culled from classical authors and biblical verse. And if you, if you analyse her 
correspondence and I did this by transcribing it and then putting uh, the Latin quotes into uh, Google Scholar or Google Translate and I was able to pull to find exactly where these quotes were coming from and it's obvious that she's got a knowledge of Horace, Virgil, Juvenal, you know, the Castiglione's Book of the Courtier, Book of Ecclesiastes, or, you know, the Psalms, Deuteronomy, all sorts of things are being, you know, uh, she, she's quoting here. And it's, it's hardly surprising that she's doing that. And what you get a sense of is that there are elite women who are classically educated uh, and their classical learning, their classical reading becomes almost second nature for them. And it, it becomes almost a badge or marker of erudition and learning. But there are also other women who just discuss books more more generally. So you take a, a letter writer, 17th century letter writer like Lady Anne Newdigate, and she uses classical themes in some of her letters, letters of petition, um, petitioning on behalf of her children she refers to the roman emperors um which suggests that she has a sort of an awareness of vernacular literature and drama that is classically classically inspired um the other letters that she that she wrote you know quote lines from spencer's the ruin of time um another has um has a full stanza from book four of the fairy queen so she's got a sort of fairly you know fairly sort of good uh knowledge of literature and we get that sort of sense of of what they're of what she's reading we also i think get a sense of of women's enjoyment of you know of of reading you know the sense of that they are reading not simply for religious purposes but we also get a sense of their their reading of romances their reading for leisure during this period so there we are sam there's a sort of trot through uh not only some interesting local histories uh, some interesting secondary texts if you want to get into the history of reading but then also uh, an example of how one might access um reading skill and ability through through letters in this instance so there very we are very good very enjoyable lots to think about there i just want to go kind of strip it back to thinking about the ability to read and to 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 learning to read and actually how you do it and how it was explained in the past if you think about this so uh, where so you can read right we can read our books but where did the writing come from? How, how was writing invented, and what were the what was the explanation in the past for it? One way of getting into this is to look. Or a really good example is to look at the history of runes. I've always been fascinated by them. So this is um, lots of different runic alphabets, um, but they're basically um, they were used to write a variety of. Germanic languages. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with, maybe other people will be most familiar with, are Viking runes. Um, so rune stones, those very distinctive vertical, sharp lines, forked lines, almost look like the outline of trees sometimes. Fascinating stuff. But what I liked about this is that it's obviously at some point some Viking sat down and tried to explain where the runes came from. Who, who was the first person to do it? And ha ha basically, how was the gift of being able to read, the gift of literacy uh, created? And um, it helps you understand, I think it's their perception of history. And do you know what they came up with, James? Who, who, where, did the, where did the runes come from? Well, of course, they came from Odin, because uh -huh, Odin was responsible for, 
pretty much everything. Um, and we know it's a wonderful story of how Odin came to have the runes. And this comes from the Poetic Edda, which is a, it's a, it's a collection of Old Norse poems uh, written in the last quarter of the 13th century, 1270s or so but not discovered until the 17th century. I love this idea as well of someone discovering their own history. I mean, an Icelandic bishop found this or it was given to him. It was found by someone else, given to him. He realised it was so important. He gave it to the king of Denmark. Um, but imagine this. So, so you're the king of Denmark or you're living in Iceland and you've got some sense of history. Um, there'll be, you know, ruins of buildings and, and oral tradition, but you don't really know what's going on until someone finds a written history. And then you can sit down and you can read it for the very first time. All of these mysteries are explained. Um, so I love that kind of moment in history and someone being able to sit down. Anyway, uh, this is this is from the Poetic Editor and explains how the Vikings thought that runes were invented. I trow I hung on that windy tree nine whole days and nights, stabbed with a spear, offered to Odin, myself to mine own self given, high on that tree of which none hath heard, from what roots it rises to heaven. None refreshed me ever with food or drink, I peered right down in the deep, crying aloud I lifted the runes, then back I fell from thence. Nine mighty songs I learned from the great son of Balethorn, Bestler's sire. I drank a measure of the wondrous mead, with the soul's stirrer's drops I was showered. Ere long I bare fruit and throve full well, I grew and waxed in wisdom, word following word I found me words, deed following deed I wrought deeds. Hidden runes shalt thou seek, and interpreted signs, many symbols of might and power. By the great singer painted, by the high powers fashioned, graved by the utterer of gods. For gods graved Odin, for elves graved Dane, Dvalin the Dalir for dwarfs, all wise for Jotuns, and I of myself graved some for the sons of men. Dost know how to write, dost know how to read, dost know how to paint, dost know how to prove, dost know how to ask, dost know how to offer, dost know how to send, dost know how to spend. Better ask for too little than offer too much, like the gift should be the boon. Better not to spend than to overspend. Thus Odin graved ere the world began. Then he rose from the deep and came again. Wow. This <laughs> is just absolutely the business. I'd like to write another PhD on the poetic Edda. And um, yeah, there we are. A little explanation. I think it needs a bit of digging down into that. But uh, how the runes came to be discovered um and here we have this explanation that runes were given to odin who sacrificed himself by hanging on the tree of yggdrasil in order to gain wisdom gosh it sounds like tolkien sam you're you does doesn't, doesn't it? it good goodness me well we all know that's you we all know that's where he got lord of the rings from anyway yeah. all right i want to um, i want to have you finished or well, do you know what? I'm, I've, I've got one little section, but I'm just going to stick it on now because then it'll make sense, good. actually. Um, no, no, good. Just think, good. Think, think about the ability to read and how important that is and how, how people felt an urge to explain it. And you could take this sort of the, the history of uh, of learning to read um, to imperialism mm. and the, what you might call the civilising mission undertaken by most European colonial powers between the 17th and the 20th centuries. Um, a very interesting example is the Dutch ethical policy, early 20th century. 
And what they were trying to do is to westernise, to to, to uh, um, civilise, as they saw it, indigenous populations. And they did it in the East Indies, primarily, is what we're talking about here. Um, and they set up these things called DESA schools in 1906 to educate and particularly to, to encourage literacy. But what happens, this is the really interesting thing, is it creates a small elite of indigenous uh, people who, who are well-educated, they're literate in Dutch, and then they want to become separate from the Netherlands. Uh, and this pattern is really interesting. So what's happening is there's a rise of an educated local elite who can read Romanized language. Um, but then that leads to a desire for independence, and particularly in this case, a, a united Indonesia itself. Um, the, the entire united Indonesia can be traced back to the Dutch teaching um, teaching people to read. So, uh, and, and, and you can follow a very similar pattern also in the British Raj. Um, and it's really interesting, at the early years of the Indian National Congress, so this is 1885, they're, they're dominated by... Uh, English literate Hindus. And what actually happens is that the ability to read a European language gives these early Hindu politicians credibility, not only to the, the people who have colonised them, but also to the local population. And so it then kind of creates and drives its own their own efforts for independence, all fascinatingly linked linked to the ability to read, having been taught by by the English by by English. So so what you've got here is the reading of English is hugely influential in in allowing those indigenous uh, Hindus, the the Indians, to be taken seriously by the Raj. But then, of course, what happens is once they gain their independence, or you have uh, um, people uh, campaigning for for nationalism. Um, they they then envisage a future where the ability to read English becomes less important for them. Um, so a fascinating mixture there between uh, political independence and the ability to read. It's one of the really interesting debates around about teaching a population to write from uh, from uh, the perspective of the state. In that, what you are doing in one level is you are you're giving people a skill. So a skill that allows them to be able to read, in which case you can indoctrinate them with the kinds of things that you want to you want them to read, and you can impose censorship that allow and control printing presses and that kind of thing, so that they're reading certain kinds of things. But having given them that skill, you know, there's then if you lose control of it as a state, you know, they are then able to get access to literature and books and ideas that the state doesn't necessarily want them to want them to have you know which is why you know which is why it's so important everyone to invest in the humanities because we want people to be critical and engaged and you know and have not have them devalued um it there are so many i mean we could go on and do three four five episodes on this i think sam because there are so many burning issues one of the big issues at the moment in the university world and in schools is all about decolonizing the curriculum and how do you look at that from the perspective of the kinds of books that people are reading you know and so there are ways of looking at canonical texts and texts that are on syllabi the range of courses that are being offered and actually you know looking at that and thinking about how do we give a sort of more diverse you know sort of um 
you know, viewpoint? How do we bring in more kind of texts, more kind of, you know, diverse range of, of books from different cultures, um, you know, from from across the world? So I think that that's absolutely fascinating. And you're actually you're actually introducing lots of big ideas there. I want finally um, a final example uh, about letters. I want very briefly to talk about uh, about how people would read letters. And I started in my last little foray into letters and reading, I started by thinking about whether people could actually read letters. So the distinction between reading printed scripts and being able to read handwriting. And I think one can't assume that it's the same thing. But then I think what we need to think about is ideas of how people read and what they are able to read. And here I think it gets to the very heart of the definition of what is a letter. What is a letter in terms of it being addressed to a particular person? And we now have laws against the opening of other people's mail. Yeah, so if a post person, for example, you know, purloins uh, letters, that is a sort of criminal offence. But also there's there are unwritten rules about whether you should open somebody's letters, a letter that is addressed to somebody. You don't necessarily open it and read it because it is seen as private. Throughout the early modern period, there is a development of this, that people are thinking about their own letters, their own correspondence that is sent to them. It's much more it's much more pronounced once people are able to read for themselves and don't need somebody else reading for them. So in a sense, then the contents of the letter become private because they can read it themselves. And there are all kinds of devices that are developed throughout the 16th and 17th centuries about making sure that letters are secret, that they're written in secret codes, that they're sealed in particularly secure ways so that you can see whether they've been opened. But also, I think we can see the development of ideas of community groups for reading. So particularly among the family, people would send one letter and then expect to one member of the family and then expect it to be passed round. And I'm writing a very interesting paper at the moment on long distance communication. I'm giving a keynote in a few weeks time for uh, very, very kindly asked to give a keynote at a conference called Distant Communications. And one of the things that I'm thinking about there is how those long distance communications work, particularly in a transatlantic se setting where actually getting letters backwards and forwards is very difficult. And so how do people keep in touch? How do they deal with that distance? And one of the ways I'm looking at this is thinking about you know, the ways in which letters are sent and then the ways in which they are read. And often people writing in New England in the 17th century would send letters across to family members and then ask them to be the letters to be passed around because it was so difficult to get letters backwards and forwards. There were so many difficulties and vagaries of the post. Ships sank and it could sometimes take months, sometimes even a year for letters to actually work their way back to 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 old England, so thinking about that is is quite an interesting thing. How do we how do we define what is personal and private in a letter? How do we think about the the ways in which they're reading? And one might contrast that with looking at more formal types of letter. So thinking about formal types of letter in say Elizabethan England, and you can think about those kinds of letters that might be written to the monarch asking for clemency or 
for, for some particular favour. And these letters would not be read silently by the Queen. Instead, they would be given to somebody who was very close to her at, at court, often a woman of the bedchamber, and the letter would be accompanied by a physical person. And the physical person would not only be able to hand them the letter at a particular point in time when they were in a, a good mood and able to pay attention to it, but also there's a lot of evidence that they would have been read out rhetorically. And if you this links very nicely to the structuring of classical letters that were actually meant to be read in an oratorical style. So there we are. There's a sort of a dance around all kinds of issues of Tudor and Stuart and transatlantic letter writing, Sam. Wonderful stuff, James. Uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed that, our little history of reading. There's certainly all sorts of things we can come back to there. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history and all things to do with the sea, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you're interested in social media and reading what we're putting out into the Twitter sphere, you can follow me at James Nabel. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook and on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And we also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the endeavour of spreading history around the world absolutely uh, that's all for now guys we'll be back soon with the history of contempt Ooh. I have utter contempt for that idea Sam Willis <laughs> it's going to be good right? see you all soon guys bye bye bye